Father, we thank you and praise you for this time that you've given unto us. And we thank you, Lord, for the work that only you can perform and you are the only one who can do it. For Lord, we are a people who have great needs. And you are the God that has not any needs at all. There's nothing that you have need of, Lord. And Lord, we forget that there was a time, O oh God, that you existed all by yourself. Before you created the very first angel, before you created the first world, before you created the first human being, you were. And that puzzles us because we can't figure that out. We cannot begin to understand of that who has never been created, never made, never has a beginning. But, oh God, we're so thankful that we don't have to figure it out. But by faith, Lord, we come to you, believing what you have said that you've done for us. Because we are the people who have the need. We have the need of salvation. We have the need of having our steps ordered. We have the need of having our minds corrected. We have the need of having someone help us, O oh God. And Lord, we thank you that you're there for us. No greater love could we have ever discovered than the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you help us to love him as faithfully as he loves us? Would you help us, O oh God, to serve him as faithfully as he serves us? Would you help us, O oh God, to acknowledge him, the one who never slumbers, the one who never sleeps, the one who always has us as the apple of his eye, would you help us, O oh God, to always be seeing him and him alone? That, Lord, he is the one that we need to look to. He is the one who has given us eternal life. He is the one who keeps us in the palm of his hand and no man can snatch us out. He is the one who protects us from the enemy who would desire to destroy us. Help us, Lord, to be steadfastly looking at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is that author and finisher of our salvation. Lord, thank you. Now, Lord, we come this morning not to hear from flesh and blood, but we come to hear from you. Would you open your word? Would you reveal that which is hidden? Would you show us? Would you teach us? Would you challenge our minds and our hearts that, Lord, that we might leave this place saying, wow, what a God we serve. What a God we serve. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs>
why Jesus? And a lot of people ask that question. Why Jesus? Couldn't there be another way, another reason, uh, another somehow that God could have saved us other than the sacrifice of his own son? Of Jesus Christ shedding his blood? Jesus Christ coming and taking on the form of a human body of man? Couldn't there have been some other way? And there could have, maybe. And that's the question that sometimes we have to give that answer. There could have been, maybe, another way. But this is the way God chose. Jesus Christ. No other name under heaven and earth whereby men must be saved. God ordained that. And that's why it happened. It happens in God's time, God's way. And man can't change that. But man can learn from it. And man has to learn this. God is never in a hurry. God is never in a hurry. See, man lives in the thing called time. With God, there is no time. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Timeless. But this morning we're also going to look at God functioning in time. This realm of time. And looking at it. Now, why Jesus? This is a puzzle to man. He is the unimaginable. Man would have never thought of such a plan to save himself. Jesus is the impossible. We don't understand the virgin birth, but we're so thankful that it happened. We don't know how it really happened other than the information the scripture gives us. impossible for a virgin to have a child without something happening that we call intercourse or intimacy or impossible. Unfathomable. Jesus. Inexhaustible. Unbelievable. And that's why a lot of people don't believe in him because he is unbelievable. Incredible that he would do the work that he did on our behalf. Disbelieved. Person, he is the most disbelieved person you will ever study or know. It really does take faith to believe in him. It really does take faith. And that's why scripture tells us, without faith you cannot what? Please God. How do we please God? Believe on his son. 
But without faith, you cannot please God. Without faith, you can't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes faith to believe that God sent Jesus into the world to save us. It really does take faith. Because first thing you have to argue with is yourself. Here's the argument. Do I need a Savior? And then you have to examine yourself. And you're asking the question, why do I need a Savior? You only need a Savior if there is a heaven and hell. If there is no heaven, there is no hell, you need no Savior because somebody is going to give you the permission or direct you either to heaven or hell. And you have to examine yourself. And some people have examined themselves so well that they say, it's up to me. It's by my works that I get to heaven or I'm told I'm not allowed to enter heaven. It's up to me by how I live. That's a self-evaluation that is not a biblical evaluation. That's a self-evaluation. It's, yeah, I do believe in God, but not the God of the Bible, and I make him up to be what I want him to be. I make him up to act the way I want him to act. I make him up that he has the character that I want him to have and how he responds to me. I make him up. He's my imaginable God. He's my made-up friend. But he is not the Jesus of the Word of God. We have to examine ourselves. Go to Romans 3.23. Romans 3 and verse 23. And he's going to say something about us that either is true or is false. All have sinned. And somebody might be saying, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. And the only way you say that is by how you define sin. How you define sin. Not how God defines it as a transgression of his word. You look into your own life and you say, I haven't sinned. And you judge that you haven't sinned because you haven't hurt anybody. You haven't killed anybody. You haven't robbed from anybody. Do you understand today? It's not immoral to sleep around. It's okay. Why? Because I say it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You know why so many women are cussing today, which you didn't at one time, you wouldn't hear? Because they've said, it's okay. It's okay. If a man can do it, I can do it. Anything a man can do, I can do. 
And we say, it's okay. But yet scripture says, sweet water and bitter water cannot come out the same faucet. But yet we say it's okay. But yet God's word says, all have sinned. All have. We all have sinned. I don't care what your title might be. It can be Pope. You have sinned. It can be the most high bishop. You have sinned. It can be Pastor Gus Brown. He has sinned. We all have sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of this one thing, the glory of God. The glory of God. Go over to Romans 6 now. And he, again in verse 23, he simply says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Eternal life is given as a gift, an unspeakable gift, an undescribable gift. And is given through Jesus Christ. Either I believe that or I don't. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. I either believe it or I don't. For the wages of sin is death. Do I believe that I will experience death. Now the question comes, what kind of death am I talking about? Physical death? And this is talking about a death that is separated from God. You're still alive, but you're separated from God. That's what it's talking about with that word death. And then he comes back and he says, but... The gift of God. What God has given unto us. And he says it correctly when he says the gift. Because a gift is always what? Something that is given, not something you have earned. It really is a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. But it's wrapped in this package that you must be willing to receive. The package is in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ. The package of eternal life. The gift that God wants to give unto every man and woman is wrapped in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, go over to Romans Chapter 3, because as we look at ourselves, we have to be willing to agree with God. He's given us this gift. Well, I don't need his gift. One of the things that Elaine and I have decided this year, we're not going out and doing a lot of shopping. Well, I might well tell you the truth. She's not going out and doing a lot of shopping. I'm not going nowhere. Haven't done it for years. And since my kids are all grown, I don't even go to 
the dime stores no more or the dollar stores no more. You could get an acne bag and fill it up and give it to them. But they can buy all their own stuff now. So very little do I do. But we said what we would do, give them gift cards. They can go out and get what they want to get. Because we found out some of the things we were giving to our grandchildren, while they're in our present, <laughs> thank you, thank you, I like this, thank you, thank you. And we never see it. So that told us something. <laughs> you know. It might be like some grandparents that remind me they were giving their kids pajamas, 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 and the one granddaughter said, pajamas again? So we decided just to give God decided to give us eternal life as a gift. Not that we earned it, not that we deserve it. In the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Look what he says in Romans chapter 3, first in verse 10. He says, Boy, as it is written, there is no one righteous not even one. Looked over the whole earth, looked at all humanity, and summed up that there is none that is righteous. And a lot of people go about trying to develop their what? Their own righteousness. And they have to make up their own rules in order to justify their own righteousness, but then their righteousness is not of God because it's of their rules, not of God's. And he says, there's not one that is righteous. And somebody will stand up and say, I am. I am. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't hurt anybody. I haven't stolen from anybody. And we justify ourselves as being right. And the scripture is right. Every man sees himself right in his own what? His own eyesight. In the way in which he measures himself and sees himself. So he doesn't see his need for Jesus because he's the one blocking what he really has need of. And he says again, as it is there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, who have understanding. That understanding can go two ways. Understanding of who? Self or understanding of God. Understand this. You can't understand yourself until you sit down and have a talk with God and God reveals who you are and what you are. Neither can you understand God until God reveals himself to you. To you. Can you understand? There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Why? There's no understanding of him. There's no knowledge of him. But we're not seeking after.
after that knowledge. We're not seeking after that understanding. Which leads then to all have turned away. Turned away from what? From God and from his truth. What's happening in our country? What's happening in our society? There is a turning away from whom? God and his truth. They have together become worthless. Not that you're non-existing, but you're worthless. There is no one who does what? Good. Well, I'm good. The little girl went up to her daddy and said, Daddy, help me to be good. Help me to be good that I won't get a whooping for the bad things I do. In one way, that's how we pray to God. Lord, help me to walk uprightly that I might not do what? The bad things that I do. And God says there's not one who is what? Good. That's hard for man to swallow. That he's not a good person. That's why Dr. Schuler used to come up and he used to make the statement, don't tell man that he's a sinner. Because man doesn't believe that he is a sinner. And man doesn't believe that he's not righteous. Because every one of us see ourselves right in our own sight. Our own eyesight. And don't tell me I'm not good. Because I'll tell you two or three people that I'm better than. But when you leave everybody else out of your examination of yourself, you will conclude you need God. When you really look at yourself in the light of Scripture, and what scripture says about it, then you will conclude and agree with God you need a savior. Now, in Galatians 4.4, 4, where we're basically going to be camped at for a little bit, and I better run, the verse, we're going to take the four sections of this verse in which we will keep returning to. So always keep yourself also in Galatians 4.4. 4. But let's go there and let's read it <clears throat> because it's speaking about Jesus Christ. And in 4.4 4 he says, But when the time had fully come, and that's the first part, in the proper time, when time had fully come, he did something. He sent his son. He sent his son. Born of a woman. In the natural. Jesus was born in this human realm 
and the natural way in which people would be born except for this, not by the will of man or the desire of man. Born of a woman and then born under the law. Fullness of time is when something is completed. And whatever that was, when the fullness time that had to be completed, the only one who knew that that time was completed was God. The second coming of Christ. We cannot tell you the time. And Jesus told us, no man knows that time in which he's going to return, other than the Father. But when that time comes, when that time is right, when it's ready, he's going to come. Because he's going to be sent again at that time. Take nature for a moment. If you pick grapes too early, what do you wind up with? Really nothing. There's a time to pick grapes. But if you let them stay on the vine too long, what do you get? So there is a proper time or season to pick the grapes. There's a proper time to pick the apple, the orange, the fruit, even the corn off of the stock. There's a proper time to pick it. If you pick it too early, the corns on the inside haven't fully developed. You pick it too late, it's going to become tough, 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 tough and begins to dry up. There's a proper time for it. There was a proper time for Jesus to come. And in that fullness of time, God sent him. And it gave time for man to prove to man he could not do what only God was able to do, is to draw all men unto himself and together all the different ethnic groups together in peace under one name, Jesus Christ. So I don't care where you go in the world, you will find that group who profess Jesus as Lord. Different ethnic, different nationalities who claim to Jesus Christ. And they've been gathered together not by war, but by a calling unto a living God and a recognizing of truth. And a recognizing of truth. No matter what their country or ethnic group may have believed, once they hear God's truth and really accept it and the Holy Spirit speaks, they surrender to it. There's a surrendering to it. Go to Ephesians 1 and verse 10. 
Ephesians 1, verse 10. He says, To put into effect, when the time will have reached their fulfillment, here is God dealing with what again now? Time. When time had reached its fulfillment, something was going to be put into effect. What was going to be put into effect? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was going to come and declare grace and truth. Truth and grace. And to be put into effect, the time will have reached their fullness to bring all things in heaven and on earth. What? Circle that word together. No one else could do that but Jesus Christ, who could bring all things together. To bring man together with God. Though separated at one point, now together. What's in heaven and what's on earth is now together because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. To be put into effect when the time will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. Even Christ. Even Christ. In God's time. It's happening. It's happening. But there's going to come a time that Jesus Christ himself sits here on earth. And rules. The one who rules in heaven will rule on earth. And there comes that time there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And they are together. Now, I want you to go to Titus. And we're going to take this little section apart because faith and knowledge is so important. Faith and knowledge is so important here that we put these two things together. Titus 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth. That leads to godliness. What does truth lead us to? Godliness. If we believe truth, it takes us on a journey of godliness. If we believe it, if we don't believe it, it leaves us in the state we're in of ungodliness. But if we believe it, 
that takes us on a journey of godliness, of becoming godly. And he says now, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, of faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Now, I want to put these two things together. You tell me. And I want you to think of the book of James then. Can you have faith without knowledge? Can you have faith without knowledge? No. You need knowledge for what purpose? To grow your faith. Now, in Romans 12, it says, God has given every man, what? A measure of faith. Then when you get to Peter, he says, add to your faith. How do you add to your faith? How do you build your faith? By knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of truth. Where do you find truth? In God's word. You develop your faith by how much time you spend in God's word. You see and you begin to see things differently by the way you're in God's word. And your faith and your hope and your trust is built in God by how much time you spend in his word. Without knowledge, you cannot develop your faith. You need knowledge in order to grow in your faith and to truly believe. Absent of knowledge, man will say, I have faith, but watch his action. None of us deny that we don't have faith because we put faith as synonymous with believing. So you might want to ask me, do I believe in a higher being? Yes! But that's not faith. Just because you believe. But we have put them together in a sense. Faith is something only God gives. And it's something that has to be developed and nurtured through the Holy Spirit in God's Word. We use faith sometimes as an illustration. If I go over here and sit in that chair, I say, I have faith that that chair is going to hold me. There is a thing about human faith. The problem with that is this. It only takes you so far. It's a limited faith. It is God's faith in believing in him that causes Peter to do what? To do the impossible, to step out on water. And even Peter said, Lord, bid me to come to you because this ain't never been done before. I had never heard in history where man would walk on water. And Jesus says, And in our faith, believing and trusting God, God in difficult situations, in hard parts of life, God says, come. Come. 
So we walk through our difficulties. We walk through our problems. We walk through the fire. We walk through the testing. He just doesn't make it disappear. He gives us the ability and the faith to walk through it. And that's biblical faith. That's godly faith. But it takes the knowledge of knowing him in order to trust him and believe him that he puts it together there. Boy, faith and knowledge resting on the hope of what? Eternal life. My faith and knowledge allows me to truly believe I have what? Eternal life. And there I rest. I know I'm going to heaven. That's where I rest on faith and knowledge of what he has said, what he has given to me in the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes down a little further and he says, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of the time. Now catch verse 3. And at his appointed season, God's what? Appointed season. God's time. God's time. He brought his word to light. And when you go over into St. John, the word becomes the light of what? Of the world. And it shines in darkness, and darkness cannot comprehend it. But it also says another thing. In darkness, you cannot understand God. When you come into the light, and you're under the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're in his word, you begin to gain understanding. You cannot understand in darkness. But you only understand as you come into the light of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And God begins to give understanding. How does he do it? Oh boy. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me, Paul says. Through preaching. What is Paul saying? Through the proclaiming of God's truth. In proclaiming God's word, I begin to have understanding. I begin to walk in the light. Through the proclaiming. Now, every one of us in here are proclaimers. You're proclaiming something. Every day in your workplace, every day in your home, before your children, every day before your neighbors, you are making a statement either of your belief or your unbelief. You are proclaiming that which God has given light to through Jesus Christ. And we need to catch that picture. 
that all of us are proclaiming, all of us are preaching, not just the preacher, not just the pastor. All of us are doing that with our life. Then Paul says, I am one who is preaching. Preaching what? The truth. Are you preaching the truth? Are you declaring the truth? Are you living the truth? Are you living out what God's word says? Or are you one who falsified God's word by living the way you live and people see it and it causes them to doubt God? And Paul says, boy, I'm doing this. But he only did it. Now catch this. He only did it in the appointed time, in the appointed season that God had. That God had. Now, go to Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to get back into Galatians. But go to Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 26. You could go back up to verse 23 and start reading down, and you could do that on your own time, but I'm going to pick up in verse 26. But 23 would be a good place to really have a fuller understanding of it and come on down. But in 26, he said, Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But God only picked one time, one place the proper season that Christ would come and he would die for us. And he says from the beginning of creation, boy, he would have had to die over and over and over again, giving an example of what the high priest did in the temple by going in every year, every year, every year, making a sacrifice or atonement for our sin. He sent Christ, and the scripture says he did it once. Once. Once for us. Once. But how he has appeared once for all at the end of the age. To do away with what? Sin. To do away with sin. By the sacrifice, now catch this, of himself. Understand this. He allowed himself to be sacrificed for us. The God of creation allows himself to be sacrificed for us. And in the likeness of man, yes, he was able to bleed because without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. And all the Old Testament sacrifices were of what? Of blood. And they would sprinkle the blood for the purpose of cleansing. And Christ shed his blood for the purpose of our cleansing of our sin. And Hebrews says he did it once. God's timing. God's timing. He did it once. And he says he sent his son in Galatians. He says, God says, I sent my son. God sent his son. That's a perfect 
purposeful act. When you tell your child, go to the store, child's not going to the store on its own, what? Initiative? Uh They're going in obedience of who? When you tell somebody else or ask somebody else to do something, they're doing it in cooperation, what? With you. Applying what you desire, they're, they're willing to do. Before the world was ever created, this plan was developed by God. By God, Ephesians tells us. And he sent his son in the fullness of the time. When the time was right, he sent him. He sent him. Now, Scripture helps us to understand two things about Jesus Christ. And we're going to dive into a little bit of this. He sent him, and in sending him, he took on another nature. He was sent as God. He is God. And now he puts on a human body, this flesh, this blood, and he has this human nature. Follow with me now. He puts on this human nature. Did he have the sin nature? Because he put on a human No. The sin nature was not there. Therefore, you'll hear people argue, Jesus could have sinned. The only way Jesus could have sinned is if he had a sin nature. But there was no sin nature there. But yet he's in the likeness of man. And we take the word likeness as that in all details of humanity, he's like that. Yes, he breathed. Yes, he thirsted. Yes, he hurt. Yes, he had the ability to weep and cry. Yes, he had the emotional part. But he did not have the sin nature. He had two natures. That of man, yes. The human part that is under the law. And what does the law say? If you exist as a human being, you must breathe. Or you no longer what? Exist. You must breathe. As human beings, yes, one of the things we have need of is water. And he did thirst because he was like us. But he's not like us in totality. He's not like us in a sin nature. Now stay with me. He only has a human nature and a divine nature. 
with those two natures, the question I pose to you is this. Did he need a soul? For man is made up of what? Body, soul, and spirit, we say. Trichotomy. If you're only a dichotomy, it's body and soul. The soul being the consciousness of the person. And the real person. Now stay with me. Don't lose me because it's so important here. What does God say about the soul? Fear not him who can only do what? Kill the body. But fear him who can cast body and soul where? Into hell. Jesus Christ was never going to be where? Cast into hell. He is the one who says he know from which he has come and he was going to return to who? To the Father. He never talked about spending any length of time in hell. And then when you study that, he went down into paradise to show those who had believed looking towards the cross, looking for the coming of the Messiah. He went down to Abraham, David, all those who were in paradise to show that he had come. And yes, he went. That's why the tomb is empty. He went into paradise with that body. Not soul, but with body. And revealed himself that the promises had been kept. That which they were believing and looking forward to had now come. So he did not go down into the pits of hell where the demons were, he went to paradise. went to paradise. He needed not a soul because his placement was not going to be or any thought of it in hell. But in heaven. He has only two divine healing, has two natures. One of man, one of God. But not when it says the word life. It's similarity. He simulates man without being totally man. And sometimes we take that word totally too far because we forget he is also God. Now, when you argue the issue or when you hear people argue the issue that he could have sinned, or if you argue with a person from Islam, is never, is never a part, even with Jesus, in Buddhism, the argument is never about him existing. As a man, all basic religions believe Jesus existed. The argument comes in when you describe to him deity. 
when you say he's God, when you say he's Savior, when you say he's more than man, now the argument comes in. That's why in Islam, Jesus is one of the most important prophets. He was a man. That's why in Buddhism, Jesus is important because he was a man full of wisdom, but not God. And even in some of the writings of the Hindus, Jesus is an important prophet, but not God. And he only possesses these two natures, one that is similar to man, that he might bleed for man. He might shed blood because without the remission of sin, there's no shedding of blood. There's no remission of sin. That man who sinned would hang on the cross and God would be in that body dying for us. Dying for us. But he needed not a soul. So in that way, he was not like man. Let me take you just a little bit further, and we'll be done to just show this from this perspective. God sent his son in Philippians 2.8. It says, he was fashioned like a man. And being found in the appearance, or like a man, in the appearance of a man. And then you drop down in verse 7, I'm sorry, up in verse 7. Being made in human likeness, or similar to man, but not totally as we are. And And I understand when we say, He was total man, totally a human. We're talking about those qualities that are like humanity. But the problem is, is this. If you dropped the deity of him, and this is where the argument leads to, if you drop the deity of Jesus, Now you can say, he sinned. He sinned. You can say, it's possible for him to sin. But if you hold to the deity, then that argument is false. Let's see why. God sent him to be a mediator. Because he was without sin. He was the only one who could mediate on our behalf. He was born of a woman, but not of the will of man, but the will of God. And therefore, he himself is one that is subject to the law of man, because he was like man. Now, go with me, first 
Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we're going to go right back to that area about why not a soul <clears throat> and why he couldn't sin. Second Corinthians five. Better get there myself. <clears throat> five twenty one. God made him. He made a body. Is not talking about his deity side, the body side. God made him a body fit to be here. Follow me a little further here. God made him who had no sin. He had what? No sin. Question. Is God speaking? He had no sin at the present moment in which he's in the state of being a man? Or is he speaking from the past before he ever took on flesh and blood that he had no sin. And what is God is declaring is that Jesus never, 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 never had sin. And that's why God can't tempt man with what? With sin. Not from the time he just put on, body, on the body. But he uses the word had not previous before that time. He had not sinned. Stay with me. 